Hello and good morning, good afternoon. Very warm welcome to uh, all of you for this first uh, Mideast event after the Easter break. We're uh, hitting the ground running and I'm uh, happy to see that so many of you took the opportunity to uh, prioritize what I think is a very interesting question at this uh, particular time. The title of the seminar is uh, The War in Ukraine and its Impact on Energy in the Middle East. We could have made the title longer because it won't be only about impact on energy in the Middle East. It will certainly also be on the impact of Middle Eastern energy on uh, global peace and conflict. And it will also be uh, on the impact on uh, the envisaged green shift in the Middle East. So um, we have quite a wide canvas to cover, but we do also have a very competent uh, panel to help us uh, cover it. The um, seminar is hosted by Prio's Middle East Center. My name is Christian Berg Harpwiken. I am uh, leading the Middle East Center here at uh, Prio. Uh, we host a series of seminars, most of them in the form of breakfast seminars, but we didn't want to drag you out of bed all that early on the first day after Easter, so today we went for a lunch event. And Lunch actually means physical lunch as well, so uh, feel free to help yourself to a lunch at the, at the back of a room. Uh, it is allowed to stand up even while the deliberations are underway, but please do so uh, quietly. Uh, the Middle East Center is a four-year project. We're in our final year, uh, and we hope to get an extension, of course. We are funded by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, of Norway through an arrangement with Norwegian Research Council, and we really have a flexible grant which we can use to pick up on topics of relevance to the political developments in the Middle East. And of course, the Middle East is a big place and there is no lack of drama. So we do not claim to pick up on any significant development in the Middle East. But um, we try to match our expertise to whatever it is that is of uh, current interest. Hence, also, today's uh, topic. Uh, the panel that we have consists of, from the left, uh, Pavel Baev. Pavel is a research professor at uh, Prio. He is a long-time student of uh, Russian foreign policy and security policy, and also of Russian energy policy. And he has also, in recent years, focused more and more on the implications of Russian foreign policy and, I should say, military engagements in the... Uh, Middle East. Uh, next, we have Harit Simitras. Harry is also a research professor at Prio, and he heads uh, Prio's Cyprus Center, so he is well-positioned to watch developments in the Middle East from uh, one of its uh, edges and the overlaps between what happens in the energy sector in the Eastern Mediterranean and what happens in the Middle East are simply deeper and deeper. He's also somebody who follows uh, global energy politics uh, um, on a systematic level. This has major relevance for the actual conflict in Cyprus, where he has his uh, main base, but uh, certainly also uh, beyond. And last but not least, we have uh, Mathilde Becker-Orsetter, who is a postdoctoral fellow at uh, the University of uh, Oslo, where she uh, works on a project on the green shift in the Gulf. And not only the Gulf, I gather, but in fact, interestingly, comparing uh, 
the green shift in the Gulf and uh, the country where we find ourselves as we speak, namely uh, Norway. And I suspect that we'll hear less about the green shift in Norway and more about energy politics and the green shift in uh, the Gulf today. But Matilda, we're very happy to uh, have you with us. The um, rough program is as follows. We'll have uh, relatively brief introductions from the three um, panelists, Pavel, Harry, and uh, Matilde. Then we'll have a, um, an exchange between them. Uh, and then, uh, towards the end, we'll also open up for uh, questions from the uh, audience. And we plan to conclude by uh, 1.30. Again, very warm welcome. Pavel, All right. take it away. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Christian. It is such a joy to have a real event after all the, all the lockdowns and, and interruptions. Uh, I have to say that the topic of Ukrainian war is not very joyful for me, but at least for this event I can break it out, all the tragedy of the war, and focus on something more technical and also more um, evolving and more... Uh, affecting uh, many other countries from this one to the Middle East, which is our uh, main focus. And I would start with a kind of plain obvious point that Russia uh, is a great energy power. You can even say energy superpower if you take into consideration the whole spectrum of its uh, capacities in, the, uh, in this industry, from coal to nuclear technology and fuel. And if you look at the kind of sum total of Russian energy experts, you will find it's really second to none. Uh, everybody else is really a distant, uh, a distant second and third. And with that uh, energy superpower now being uh, compromised, curtailed, sanctioned, you would expect that the impact on energy markets would be very strong. We have some impact. But in my reading of the situation, it is much weaker than might be expected. Uh, for that matter, if we take all oil price uh, and remember the impact of the revolution in Iran in 79, I'm old enough to remember that, uh, we had oil prices jumping three times uh, and staying up there. Uh, in this particular instance, oil price was in fact climbing up to the level of about $90 per barrel, and it spiked immediately to the level of 120 which is about 30%, not three times. And it was a little bit down, a little bit up again, a little bit down again. It probably now it's searching for a plateau on the level of about 100, 105. Uh, again, if, uh, if it's possible to predict anything about the oil price at all, do probably during this week, we will not see any more, any more spikes. Uh, rather level trajectory. Uh, and you might say oil price is not the perfect indicator. It's always the first one that comes to mind. Uh, but what we have as a result of this particular uh, crisis in the world energy market is further differentiating, further going different ways between the oil market and the natural gas market. They are essentially different in their uh, structure of uh, end use, in the structure of consumption, in the, in the supply, and in their perspectives. At least now, the European Union bureaucracy, in its wisdom, has designated natural gas as a green fuel, much to chagrin of Dia Greta and her fan crowd, um, 
and in this particular market, Russia uh, was expected to go strong. In the oil market, we had a trend that Russia, Russian production and export have peaked. Russia is not able to deliver its full quota in the uh, OPEC plus uh, format uh, even before the war. And uh, the expansion of the quota, it doesn't really mean anything because uh, basically the structure of uh, reserves and the capacity for production and the capacity of export is such that uh, the Russian position on the oil market was gradually and slightly kind of plateauing with the prospect of uh, really going significantly down by the end of this decade. This crisis has accelerated this trend, but it's not really a major surprise to many investors who were ready for that uh, and kind of really preparing uh, their policies accordingly. Uh, yes, comes a little bit earlier, a little bit of inconvenience, some small shocks, but not, no big deal. On the gas market, very different story. Russia was expected to expand with new pipelines, with new LNG facilities, and now this trend is essentially interrupted. We have a break of trend here, unlike in the, in the oil market, and the, there are many questions about how to deal with this crisis. Europe is the most affected, because most of Russian... Uh, gas as well as oil export, which uh, are directed towards Asia, go without any interruption, you know, both to China, which is a major market certainly, and to Japan uh, and to other a Asian consumers. We don't have any hiccups there at all. Europe is the center of all the disturbances, and the ambition of the European Union to cut down imports from Russia by two-thirds by the end of this year is a big political step, probably beyond possible, really. Two-thirds is going too far. It's a political signal rather than uh, what, uh, what is really achievable. But even if uh, kind of a year from now the, Russia, the import from Russia is reduced by a half, that already is uh, going from dependency to just I don't know, normal trade. Russia will not be able to instrumentalize that, to weaponize its gas export to Europe, and that's essentially the main, uh, the main thing. And Russia is very aware, very worried about this uh, development, and that's why through this war, uh, bloody and tragic as it is, Russian gas transit through Ukraine goes without any problem continues flowing, uh, no, uh, no interruptions, no attempts to uh, uh, cut that down. Um, it's not something you would expect from, from the war of this, of this intensity. But what it all means for the Middle East, may our main topic. In principle, it means uh, every uh, reduction of Russia's role means, means, means more attention to the Middle East. Uh, attention from politicians, attention from investors, uh, again, probably less in oil market and more in gas. And essentially means that the attention to the Middle East and the kind of strengthening of the profile of the Middle East is much less about Saudi Arabia than about other producers. Very often, Middle East, energy, oil, Saudi Arabia, that's the kind of chain of uh, associations. Here we need to think much more about wider Middle East, from Algeria to the East Med, Harry will be talking about that, uh, to Qatar, um, further out, uh, investors will be looking into kind of this decision. It's too early to go 
for uh, investment decisions. The only place where it is easy to do that is the United States, in fact, surprising as it is, where Joe Biden, in a matter of kind of a couple of months, have performed remarkable turnaround in his energy policy from trying to kind of discourage and even press down the shale production to encouraging it to go as strong as possible. Drill, baby, drill is a new policy there, and we have some uh, impacts of that, but uh, production in the U.S. is not really the solution to the uh, problems in that market. Much more is needed in terms of kind of investing in new capacities from Australia to Madagascar, but it will be the Middle East which is the main uh, part of the solution to that problem, and probably the main part of this main part is Iran. Uh, without re Iran really opening up, uh, expanding, uh, um, receiving investments, we cannot really have stabilization on the natural gas market. And I think the invisible hand of the market will push very hard in that direction, uh, despite objections from many quarters, including Saudi Arabia, including Israel. So I think if uh, we have an impact in the Middle East from this energy crisis, first and foremost, we need to look at how uh, the crisis around Iran uh, with the nuclear deal, with other kind of sanctions regimes, with, uh, with generally opening up, is going to uh, develop. And that's my 10 minutes. I will stop here. Uh, hope to leave more space for questions, of which there are plenty. Harry. Thank you, Pavel, for um, paving the, the way and making it much more difficult to complement this. But I'll try my best. I'll, um, I'll try to connect us with, with, with Pavel's um, distant past and say that um, one of my favorite quotes is that when former Soviet foreign minister Andrei Gromyko was um, asked, to describe relations with the West in one word, he said good. And then in two words, not good. So that's, that's exactly where um, the situation finds us today. And we, we, we need, I think, to do one thing above all. Go 30,000 feet up and look at the broader picture. Because part of the, the problem of the discussion we're having until now is that it's very hasty, it's politically driven, understandable on both accounts, but hence impragmatic. And so I would urge that we, we do two or three things together at the same time. Be very realistic in our appraisal. Understand the sense of urgency, but within the framework of the attainable. Um, and um, take very little for granted, including what you were saying regarding Iran, for instance, and how we need perhaps to revisit some of our fundamental premises. And, and truly, truly think outside the box. I'm saying this because the... Efforts that I see, I insist, are very fragmented. We're having a very good discussion, for instance, um, as good as we can have, um, on, on, on natural gas, without taking the framework within which this can be attainable, and without, to my mind, importantly, drawing threads, geographical threads and thematic threads. Until now, we have failed, I think, very consistently in, in connecting dots around this area and beyond. What is happening in the West Med absolutely affects the East Med and vice versa. Same with North and South. I have not seen a, a, a dot-connecting exercise in this. And I certainly have not seen a dot-connecting exercise thematically because what is happening in, in energy, climate change, socioeconomic factors, um, security and all that 
is also absolutely connected and needs to be connected. And the Middle East has the very unfortunate um, um, uh, unique characteristic of being, according to the UN, the number one area on the planet where climate change is happening the fastest. So we need to be super pragmatic beyond the urgency of what is happening in, uh, now with the, 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 the political situation in, um, in Europe um, to make sure that whatever we do is also cognizant of these facts and whatever we do does not only address the, the very urgent political realities we have in mind but does not undermine broader efforts for, um, for a change in the future. Also to connect with what um, Pavel was saying, um, Russia has been providing about 155 BCM of natural gas to Europe. Europe has been producing about 87, including the UK, and this is going down by 8 BCM annually. So when, when Europe is looking to get 50 BCM, that is really not a small thing. Just, just by way of, of, of um, comparison, the whole world holds about 520, 523, I think, specifically um, BCM, of which Europe imports 108 already before the war in Ukraine. So one, one fifth of all this, including the UK and, um, and, uh, and Turkey. Um, 40 BCM is the combined imported gas of a number of countries, including Malaysia, Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and, um, and others. Um, 20 BCM is, is imported by North and South America together. So obviously, finding 50 BCM is a problem. And even if you do, the price is going to be sky high. And even if you can deal with that, you're taking it away from somebody else, including all those states that I just mentioned. So obviously, there are going to be huge socioeconomic and other consequences in those states because they're going to turn into coal and burn it like there is no tomorrow, which is absolutely understandable, especially for, for uh, poverty-stricken nations. So then we're going to have a very clean Europe in a very dirty world. And I don't think that climate change is exactly what we had in mind when, uh, when, when um, uh, dealing with this let alone the socioeconomic circumstances within Europe, because obviously the, um, the, the, the pricing is going to be insane, even if we can secure this uh, supply and so on and so forth. And even if we do get it to Europe, there is absolutely no infrastructure of that magnitude to receive it, and there is no connectivity between the member states to do that. So obviously the, the very noble quote-unquote wish of, of, um, of diversifying from... from, from Russian energy within a year at 50% and, and within the next three years absolutely um, uh, detaching ourselves, I think is, is, as Pavel says, and I agree, a very important political message. But I don't think we should be consumed in this and have it as a self-fulfilling target because, because then the problems could potentially be larger. Part of this whole discussion and the very hastiness in, in which we have had it is the role of the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East in contributing to the energy security and independence in, in Europe. And that, and, that, and that is fine to have as a matter of principle, but the discussion is going back to chapters that have been closed and have been closed for a very good reason. We started discussing again very hastily a, 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 a network of pipelines, uh, including the famous slash infamous um, um, East Med gas pipeline and others, and I would humbly suggest that this is something that we need to be very wary about. The, the energy problem of Europe 
is a very urgent and very time-sensitive problem. We need that energy now. We cannot wait for pipelines to be built, even if we had the political and financial agreements in place, and they would take four to five years to build, and they would also require at least 20 years of uninterrupted, continuous usage to make business sense. People think in Europe that it is states and the European Union that funds these projects. No, it is companies that do. And it is banks that, bank, that, 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 that support the companies. So primarily all of these need to make business sense and the politics can just, just draw a framework within which the, the, um, the, um, the reality can be conducive to doing so. So I would, be, I would, be, I, I, I would sort of urge, urge us to be, to be cognizant of these facts and, and have a pragmatic discussion on what the, um, the, the future can hold. What we can do is two things, I think. One, rethink of the entire Middle East and the East Med within, within this framework. Again, in realistic terms, for instance, see how expanding the, um, the liquefaction capacity of Egyptian plants, which can be done within a couple of years, can contribute to Europe. We can see how other states in the region, perhaps Cyprus, um, Israel, can cooperate in this respect with Egypt and have that shipped to Europe in combination with infrastructure work to be done within the European Union for receiving and, and, and then uh, connecting um, gas facilities here and there. But I would also urge the European Union, and I think this is one of the, of the things that's doing well, at least as a matter of principle, the, um, the, the infinite wisdom you, you mentioned is uh, still, I, I wait to be convinced about this, but, but, but what it has done is rather than saying we need to have urgent solutions in gas now, um, it, 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 it rather said that the renewable targets need not only be met, but we need to actually um, um, uh, speed them up. So the, the, um, the, the, the new program of the EU, rather than envisaging a turn to renewables at 32% by 2030, is now up to 40%. Because it's saying, rightly so, I think, that uh, the way out eventually, short term, middle term and, and long term, would be turned to renewables rather quickly, and this way we will have energy security as we need it, we will have a sustainable issue, and we will also have a nicely involved and engaged Middle East and Eastern Mediterranean. You see, there the, are the two added advantages to this which I don't think should, um, should escape our attention. One is that the Middle East, the broader Middle East, has the physical capacity of hosting the, the deployment of renewable sources. There is physically the space to do so with solar and wind space that we don't really have in Europe if we're going to use this for electricity production that will pave the way towards green hydrogen in the future. The second very important thing in a region that is conflict-prone is that the value added of renewables lies in their connectivity. They're very different to gas or other fossil fuels because it's not commodities over which countries can fight um, over the, um, the, the proprietorship of the value added lies in connectivity if there is wish and, um, and a framework to do so. And I think this would be fantastic because we already have the, the reverse problem with fossil fuels in the region and it would also pave the way towards cooperation in this field, paving hopefully the way to cooperation in, um, in, in other fields. Um, I'm, I have no time on me, so I'll, I have no idea if I've spoken very long. Let me leave it at this if I may and then we can go back to the discussion. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation and um, I will have a slightly different focus than the previous ones uh, looking a little bit more from the perspective of the Gulf countries and 
also, I think it's worth mentioning just uh, if you're looking at the consequences of the war on the Middle East, it's a very big difference, of course, if you're talking about oil producers and non-oil producers. Uh, obviously, for the oil producers, it's mainly at, the, at this point uh, a great chance to make, to make a lot of money and to increase like political leverage. Uh, but for the others, it's they are like, countries that are already pretty fragile uh, are experiencing something of a food crisis uh, that is increasing very rapidly, like in Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen. So that's just worth also thinking about. Uh, Ukraine and Russia being the biggest suppliers of grain to the Middle East and also to the World Food Programme. Uh, so, but, but I will mostly talk about the prospects for the GCC countries to fill the gap of uh, Russia in energy supply. Is it possible? Uh, are they willing to do so? And uh, what is happening with their shifting alliances? I think we can get more into details in the discussion, but I will just keep it brief. And also, finally, I will talk about what this can mean for the green shift. I think we all know that we don't know, but... I can just make some, I think we're making some qualified guessing here today anyway. Uh, when we're talking about the GCC, uh, Qatar, there are three countries that are important in this respect. Qatar for its gas, gas production, being among the world's largest gas exporters. Um, and then you have the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia, especially for their capacity to increase oil production. Uh, gas is important, but uh, it has a more long-term uh, perspective on oil in, in uh, transporting the gas. And that's why I think that the actions of the UAE and Saudi going forward now is actually really important. And it will say a lot for how uh, oil markets can deal with this decrease in Russian oil deliveries. Uh, in a crisis that already exists by, existed, by the way, it's not caused by the war uh, and the sanctions, but... It was already there because of the pandemic. So Qatar is uh, already exporting gas pretty close to its uh, full capacity. Uh, and that's why uh, and that's, uh, it's more a matter of transportation, like I mentioned, and how much reserves the country has. Uh, it's usually contracted more on a long-term basis. Uh, so the UAE, and especially Saudi, haven't shown a lot of willingness so far to uh, to increase their oil production. Saudi Arabia has been reluctant to break this OPEC plus agreement that has been in place uh, in 2016, from 2016, to, to expand production a lot. And even if they were willing, it's a question of will it be even possible to replace Russian oil? Uh, OPEC says no, and also they say it's not really their the responsibility that political factors are creating a lot of turbulence in the market. And Saudi Arabia has gone out and said pretty much the same, the same where that they will leave politics out of uh, the decision-making in OPEC. So, uh, But then again, in 2020, in the start of the pandemic, Saudi Arabia went against Russia in a price war, uh, driving up the production and driving down the prices. So you never know. But at the current production level, it's a great situation for the GCC countries, the oil exporters. They got a lot of export revenues. Uh, it's the, I even read that uh, 
among the six member states in this uh, coalition, there will not be any budget deficits in 2022. And that means a lot for weaker economies like Bahrain and Oman. Um, so, yeah, and at, at the top, on the top of oil and gas export, these countries also have quite a lot of export of aluminium and fertilizers, which are proving to be strategic assets nowadays. So to the shifting alliances, because for decades there have been these unquestioned alliances between the US and the two most powerful Gulf states of the UAE and Saudi, uh, based on arms sales and gas and oil sales. Uh, but uh, the Saudi and the UAE have now turned more towards allying with Russia in recent years, recent few years. Saudi has been partnering with OPEC, uh, partnering with Russia in OPEC, and gone, gone against the US will to increase, like I mentioned, uh, production. Uh, at the same time, Saudi has signed a military cooperation deal with Russia last year. And the UAE and Saudi are trying to become more independent from the link to the US, more independent in their foreign policy by deepening their relation to China and Russia. So uh, you can say that it's a pretty tricky balancing act nowadays to try to maintain you know, good links to Russia and the West. Um, but that's what the UAE and Saudi has, has been trying have been trying to do, at least projecting this image of being neutral uh, on the war in Ukraine. The, the UAE abstained first from voting to condemn uh, the invasion of Ukraine. I think they have like, they have adjusted their position a little bit and. Uh, played more of a peace broker uh, position, talking to both Russian and Ukrainian leaders uh, in an attempt to de-escalate the war. Uh, but, yeah, why has, what, why, so why has this shift really happened in alliances? They see that the U.S. has been disengaging from the Middle East uh, during several uh, U.S. administrations. During the Arab Spring in 2011, they didn't feel that the interests of Arab countries were taken care of by the U.S. And also there's a nuclear arm deal with Iran that was seen as a move away from Arab interests by some. Um, so when it comes to the UAE, they are not really happy. Uh, another factor is that they're not really happy with the Biden administration getting closer to Qatar, which they are, which are basically their main or regional rival. So I think there's also uh, uh, important to remember that by aligning themselves with other autocracies, even dictatorships, with leaders uh, for life like themselves, uh, the UAE and Saudi know that they will have more stability in these relations. Although who knows uh, what will happen with Russia. Uh, I think that nothing is uh, impossible anymore. But there's also this uh, side of things where, where you see that they want to align themselves with li more like-minded leaders, I think. When it comes to consequences for the green shifts, uh, the, uh, the IPPC, uh, IPCC published its last report uh, like, uh, in the beginning of the, the war in Ukraine. And uh, the climate crisis is as urgent as ever. The world is on track for a 3.2 degree warming by the end of the century. 
And even if there's war in Europe, um, it has really global repercussions. I think it's, really, it's important to realize that uh, it's, you know, it's also easier to, to mobilize around national security and war than it is to, to mobilize around climate crisis. Uh, the climate crisis is really not going anywhere. So uh, it's also a fact that if we had taken this climate goals more seriously 10 years ago, uh, we would not have uh, been so dependent on Russian gas as we are now. And uh, Europe didn't have to fund Russia's war uh, with millions of euros every day. Um, so we, I think we have to make some short-term choices that are not good for climate. And at the same time, by the way, in uh, this food crisis in the Middle East, we'll put any focus that was already there on climate change adaptation, diversification of energy in the Middle East, even further down on the agenda for many countries than it already was. Uh, so even though yeah, many are insisting that it's really important that we don't make these huge structural choices now that go against the climate goals in the longer term or even a slightly longer term. Uh, because it might result in the green shift becoming more expensive than it would be otherwise. And uh, coal is now partly replacing Russian gas, uh, according to the International Energy Agency, uh, on a net zero path where coal has to fall by half this decade in order to stay on track. So when Germany uh, is making a deal with Qatar uh, to build two liquefied gas terminals, uh, so we can import uh, more loads from Qatar. This is totally understandable, but it also, like already mentioned, takes a couple of years to get up running, uh, and there there are fears out there that there will be that that will make us kind of more dependent on fossil fuels that we, uh, that we other, than we otherwise would have been. And instead, there are pretty much uh, there are quite a lot of uh, actions that can be done already, like stronger focus on energy efficiency and so on. There's a lot of potential for that in many European countries. Um, and it doesn't take uh, many years to get up and running. At the same time, that will give people lower energy bills. So maybe the crisis tells us that actually climate, like fast, drastic climate action is possible and has been possible all along uh, if the political will uh, is there. You might say that it's a political statement to say that they want to withdraw completely from Russian gas, but it's uh, but statements also matter. Um, and uh, substitute gas will not be enough. Uh, energy efficiency is, is necessary. Big increase in renewables is necessary. So I think that it's important to bear in mind that maybe this crisis, even though it seems exceptional right now, it's maybe even a taste of how the green shift looks like. Because in a world with, in a world with uh, changing uh, energy systems, it will not be smooth. It will be uh, periods with shortages of oil and gas. Uh, the prices will go up and down more. And uh, OPEC will have among the biggest uh, possibilities to kind of, to, to control this with its spare capacity. So, the power of the oil and gas countries today will end up probably on fewer hands. Um, and I think that Gulf countries uh, who have, at one hand, 
very little or zero public pressure to end oil dependency. Uh, on the other hand, they have very, very low production costs. They will really be the winners in this race. Um, at the same time, of course, there will be a few nations who have these key components for green technology, green energy. But that is a little bit more flexible. So I think we will, uh, we will see countries like, uh, like, yeah, the UAE and Saudi really increasing their leverage on the world stage. I think I will stop there. We can have a discussion. Thank you so much, all uh, three, for three very different introductions, which I think came together very nicely and really painted the uh, picture not only of the energy situation in the Middle East, but of its implication for the uh, green shift, both regionally and, uh, and globally. And uh, uh, Harry made a call for uh, taking a 30,000 feet perspective, which I think is, is justified, and then... Uh, Matilda, in many ways, took us down to the ground to point to exactly how this uh, manifests itself in the political positions taken and the decisions taken by, uh, by uh, leaders of the key Middle Eastern energy exporters. Um, and we'll now go a little round in the, in the, in the panel, where the panelists are uh, given an opportunity to reflect on each other's contributions look for similarities, uh, draw lines, perhaps even uh, look at contradictions between what you said, if you see any, any anything you want to challenge in, from your fellow panelists. Uh, anybody wants to start out? Paul? I might probably disagree slightly with Matilde about Saudi Arabia and OAE. And I think the difference here is exactly the difference between oil market and the gas market. Uh, Russia's uh, problems in the oil market are minuscule. The oil market is, in fact, not impacted at all. And if Europe will say we're not importing Russia's oil at all, it makes no difference whatsoever. Oil is a very fluid commodity. U.S. Uh, decided that they will ban Russian oil, and a couple of tankers turned around in the Atlantic Sea and go, went to India. Um, that's it. Oil is a very fluid commodity, and Russia is not really a major supplier, and Russian oil goes to China without any interruptions. I don't see, foresee any difficult, uh, any big impacts here. Whatever kind of uh, ideas uh, Saudi leadership might entertain, uh, particularly since some contraction of Russian supplies uh, only means that uh, Russia offers its oil at discount. So real prices in the oil market are not re uh, for, uh, for such consumers as India are not really following the same uh, trajectory. And we also have the coincidence of the kind of Russian uh, uh, reduction of Russian supply of oil and uh, a new crisis in China. Chinese lockdown in Shanghai and other places will have a major impact, far stronger impact on the oil uh, demand than any interruption of the Russian supply. So I don't really see any, uh, any particular uh, new advantages to Saudi Arabia and the OPEC uh, cartel in this regard. I think it's much more about the market for uh, natural gas, which is a different set of suppliers, different trajectory, different perspective, and in fact is much more 
uh, much more in, uh, incorporated in the discussion about the green agenda. Um, Other comments I, on that? I, I question, if I may, to, to Pavel, a factual question. I don't know if you have any information on, on Russia trying to diversify at the moment regarding um, the, the provision of natural gas to others like China because there is no infrastructure, to be honest, and that's probably what's been saving us, quote-unquote, until now. Do you hear any of this changing? I, uh, uh, last week there was a <coughs> uh, uh, meeting of Putin and kind of the industri energy mm. industry uh, officials, uh, virtual, of course. Mm. Uh, and uh, that was one of Putin's kind of instructions to, kind of to look for a greater shift towards mm. the east. And it is entirely possible with the oil, yeah. as I have said. It's not possible at all with the gas infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, the gas cannot really turn uh, away from Europe. That's where the no. pipelines are, even without the Nord Stream 2. That's the, uh, the kind of pre, uh, predetermined market. So in this sense, the rigidity here yeah. is much stronger. The only real uh, out kind of result of that meeting Putin had was a decision was taken to stop pro providing information about Russian production and Russian exports. So for researchers, it might become more exciting to, uh, to guess. <laughs> Matilde, you said that, uh, you said that um, what you see playing out in the Gulf now is very much, uh, it's, not, it's not new in the sense that you've seen the Gulf countries for many years trying to achieve more of a balance between the US and, uh, and other major powers. Uh, Russia and China being the two ones that, uh, that matter the most, of course. In your reading, do you think that they will be able to maintain this balance, or do you s is there a real risk that they will fall into perhaps not so much Russia's orbit as, uh, as China's orbit? And, and, and to what extent is this a concern to the leaders in the Gulf as, uh, as we speak? Yeah, um, good question. Um, I don't like. I think that they have opted for this so-called neutrality for a reason. They, ha they don't have. They have not really gone full in with support for Russia. And by the way, they are not alone in doing that. Uh, India and China and many other countries of the world have had a very similar approach, not going one way very clearly or the other very clearly. Uh, but I think it's. It definitely, it's a shift in the way that, in the sense that uh, U.S. can't take their loyalty and their uh, alliance for granted like it did uh, to a bigger extent in the past, I think. And uh, basically the UAE and, um, and Saudi Arabia are ruthlessly going after their own national interests, I think. Uh, they don't necessarily want Russia to to have a big defeat in Ukraine. Uh, uh, and they don't want uh, America to be, to, to kind of regain the, their unilateralism. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think Arab governments want the Russia, wants Russia to, to be strong and to have a, to have a role. Uh, at the same time, I don't think they really benefit in the long term either from war and pol increased polarization. So it's a little bit of a balancing act. And, I mean, it's important to realize that the U.S. is still also influential uh, in the region, of course. Uh, even though, as I mentioned, they, they, pull out, uh, they, 
they signed the treaty with they signed the, the the nuclear deal with Iran. They pulled out of Afghanistan, which many Arab countries seemed as a kind of uh, retreat. Um, but yeah, I think it's that it's more that more than um, these countries wanting to turn their backs on the U.S. I think they are seeking to be more less reliant on it. So. Yeah, I don't know how that will play out in practice as the war goes on. Maybe they will adjust their positions as one side or the other might come out as a more clear winner. Uh, who knows? So, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Harry, while you were calling for um, realism, I think you were also, uh, at least implicitly, quite strongly... Um, uh, watching out for opportunities to, in the crisis, promote the green shift in the region. Now, realistically, uh, the way that you read the political debates, and I'm thinking particularly then about the debates between those who take decisions in the region at the moment, do you see that there is any will, any interest uh, whatsoever in looking at this as an opportunity to, uh, to, to, um, to, to give more energy, to the, <laughs> for lack of a better term, to the green shift? <laughs> or or is, this really, uh, is this really the, um, the opportunity that there is to cling on to, um, to old habits? All of the above, depending <laughs> on how you deal with it. <laughs> what I mean to say is that, um, well, two things. One is that, yes, the... the the, the knee-jerk feeling immediately is, is one of confrontation, um, especially regarding fossil fuels, as I was saying. They were seen as a commodity and thus worth um, um, uh, fighting for, if you like, regarding the ownership. But on the other hand, the, the literal countries of the region has also, have also shown a bit of pragmatism until now on two levels. One is a little bit the ideational level, where, if you like, countries that, in principle, was not, were not always enjoying fantastic relationship between each other, um, amongst them, came together in forming some structures, um, the, outcome, the, the, the longer-term outcome of which might not necessarily be there, like the East Med uh, Gas Forum, for instance, but, in principle, that allowed countries who have not necessarily seen eye-to-eye -eye come together and promote some, um, some cooperation. You also have more tangible examples, like, like uh, the, the, the latest agreement between Israel and Jordan um, on, on cooperation, and that, I think, on, on water in particular. And, and that, I, I, I think, is indicative that political leaderships in the region, especially when externally facilitated, can be very pragmatic in certain things, despite the, the, the public sentiment, because when, when faced, for instance, in this in this case, with, um, with, uh, when exposed to, to long-term water shortages, they had to come up with a pragmatic solution. Um, another thing which is not very well known, Pavel was mentioning that, that the, the, the transiting of, of, of gas through Ukraine has not been disrupted. And bear in mind that, that Russia was a very consistent provider of gas to Europe throughout 50 years of Cold War, despite the otherwise political problems in place. Something that is not very well known is that there is an electricity interconnection between Greece and Turkey. Nobody talks much about it. I don't know to what extent it's well known, but it's existing, it's existing and operative in an otherwise politically um, problematic terrain. 
but it really depends on how we approach it because it can be, as the gas has been in the East Med, also um, a, a, an additional factor in exacerbating existing disputes because it was allowed to be seen through the prism of pre-existing conflicts rather than as a platform for reconciliation. And, and, and I would think that now we have a second opportunity, if you like, not to replicate the mistakes we made from 2010 onwards with the exploration, uh, or potential exploration, and exploitation of, of, um, of gas, not to make the same mistake with renewables. I think it's, an, it's a very good way of, of, of moving forward, um, paving the way to other forms of collaboration, exactly because it does not have baggage from the past. Um, so, so I think it can be a way out, and I think that, that, that leaders in the region can be pragmatic enough, if, if pressured uh, in the end, to, to see that. Thanks a lot, Harry. And that's, uh, that's an excellent bridge to where I want to take you next uh, as well, because in the examples that you're giving about the way in which uh, the Soviet Union and the West uh, uh, traded electricity during the Cold War and the, and the functioning electricity system between Greece and Turkey, there is also potentially an implicit lesson that whereas trade of energy has gone uninterrupted, it hasn't helped much in resolving the conflicts between the actors in question. Now, the reverse image of that, which is, I guess, the fear of, uh, of, of many, is that the current crisis may actually exacerbate tensions between various actors. And I first, again, wanted to go to the, to the Gulf where, of course, uh, the rift between previous close allies in the Gulf Cooperation Council uh, has been quite deep over the f recent few years, not least with uh, the, the joint Saudi and Emirati onslaught on, uh, on Qatar. It, uh, it has certainly uh, subsided, but in the situation that we now see, uh, Matilda, do you do you see that this could contribute to a reopening of the rift and to a worsening deterioration of the situation within, amongst the key GCC countries? Or, are, or would this really help? Where, where is this taking us? Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, but at this, at the <laughs> again, but at the moment, I think there is a, a convergence of interest for many of these countries and they benefit from having the same line, pretty much. Um, uh, yeah, in general, I think. Uh, do you talk? Are you talking about OPEC plus or OPEC? Well, I was even more myopic. I was thinking in particular about the relationship between, on the one hand, Saudi and uh, and United Arab Emirates, and yeah. on the other hand, uh, Qatar. Yeah, um, I think in general there will be, uh, as the green shift escalates, I think that there will be more fierce competition between not only GECC countries but also in general oil producers. Uh, there will be there will be more like harsh competition for customers uh, in the emerging in the emerging markets, uh, which I think is maybe. Uh, the place where they can they can expect that oil demand grows. So uh, yeah, speaking like more generally than these three countries, I think that 
I can also talk about more specifically the UAE actually, because uh, it is really an example of a country which has been so uh, renewing itself and its view on energy lately. Like it's, it's really leading in renewable energy and also very much pushing for green finance, uh, very much leading in the region. Uh, although Saudi Arabia is also following up a little bit on that. So these are the kind of national, comp national oil companies that I think will be winning in the race when they are able to renew themselves and attract new investment uh, and also go for things like hydrogen, solar um, and gas. Um, so I think that there's a general shift where uh, I think the UAE uh, is leading in and renewables and green finance, but also actually very much growing as an oil exporter. Uh, it is, uh, I think, it's the third largest producer in OPEC, and it's and it has been complaining that it doesn't have enough, uh, like uh, uh, it doesn't have enough uh, weight in the organization uh, because it's already like. It already has a production of 3.8 uh, million barrels a day, and it wants to increase to 5 million by the end of uh, this decade to really squeeze out the last uh, income from oil while it still can. Like, while prices are uh, high and demand is still high. So, in general, I think I want to just mention that I think it's important to keep in mind that even though there will be a green shift, that doesn't mean the end of geopolitics. Uh, because it will not disappear, it will shift, uh, it will take on other forms, we will see other kinds of competitions. Uh, and also, even though we do reach uh, net zero, according to the IEA, we will still use, I think it was half of the gas used today and a quarter of the oil that we use today. So that's a huge reduction, but at the same time, it leaves a lot of room for our big leading oil producers like Russia, like Saudi Arabia, to be even more powerful before they become less powerful and in the end. So, yeah. Uh, at the same time, of course, the, the poorer parts of the world will, will need more oil, more fossil fuel to, to be able to grow, and at the same time struggling with the, the most severe effects of climate change. Good. Um, if you follow up on that, Harry, you're, uh, you're a close observer of one place where energy politics has been on the verge of turning uh, into a hot conflict over the past several years, namely Cyprus, where you had Turkish exploration on the seabed very close to Cypriotic, uh, to, 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 to the island, uh, outside the unrecognized territory of, uh, of North, North Cyprus, uh, and it's still going on. Is there, is there a seed, do you see a chance that this could lead to a change in the dynamics there? And if so, which direction would that, would that change take? If, um, if people in political leaderships are, are pragmatic, yes. What I mean to say is that, again, the, the East Mediterranean is a classic case where problems that are left untreated accumulate. And then you have various layers of issues. So you had a, a, a classic set, if you like, of disputes between, between Turkey and Greece, uh, with Cyprus and others, perhaps the Arab-Israeli and all, on top of which came a new layer on, um, on, uh, on various agreements, the Turkish-Libya agreement, the, the Greece-Egypt agreement, on top of which came the 
the, the energy issue, and all of this was viewed through the prism of the existing conflicts in principle. The problem with that is that um, if we could do certain things to tackle some of these problems, the accumulated end product is too big to deal with as such, and we really need to deconstruct it as such. So energy could have, could have, been, um, could have been a platform for reconciliation um, if seen in a pragmatic way. The good thing is that now we have a very different set of, 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 um, of energy issues to discuss and very little um, in, in, in comparison to what we used to have with the fossil fuels and all that. So essentially, I think the baggage of the crisis does not necessarily have to be there, number one. Number two, we do have certain challenges slash opportunities that might not have been there in the past or we might not have been cognizant of them including, in this particular case, climate change. So effectively, the challenges we're facing go much beyond the, the traditional and narrowly construed um, um, uh, conflicts of the region, and hence solutions need to be overarching solutions, tackling that. And so through doing cooperation for climate change, I think we can also find ways of, um, of cooperating. Number three, things cannot be taken for granted in the way that we had. You mentioned Cyprus in particular, Cyprus had a very, um, how can I be diplomatic, um, comfortable and close relationship to Russia, and that I think is not necessarily going to be the case from now on. Uh, the U.S. that you mentioned very rightly was not, is not engaged in the region in any way comparable to what it used to be in the past, where if nothing else it kept a lead, if you like, on all things. So things do change. China is having an infiltration in the region which people are not aware of, and, and in classic China terms, when you wake up and understand it is really too late. So we also need to take uh, care of this. And, I, and I'm afraid that, you know, the competition that you were mentioning, not only between the local little things, but bigger things. Uh, the, the, the BRI of China with, with the global gateway, the new, the new toy of the EU and, the, and the, uh, the B3W project of the US, that can make the East Med again a terrain for contestation. But I think we should now focus on the common challenges and the common opportunities offered by the, the, the overarching problems we have like, um, like climate change and, and be pragmatic in ways that, that we can deal with the local issues, in ways that the European Union can inspire, can fund um, 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 initiatives in the region that are good for the region, for the EU uh, and beyond. Good. Uh, we'll soon open up for uh, questions from the audience, but I think there's one question which deserves some more attention. And Matilda said importantly uh, at the beginning of her introduction that there is uh, a deep difference between those countries that are net energy exporters and the poor energy importing countries of, uh, of the region. And I think the latter deserve a little bit more attention <laughs> than, than they have received so far. Uh, and there are many questions that could be interesting to examine, but perhaps the first one would be simply to to look at what opportunities does the current crisis offer for poor countries in terms of promoting a green green shift, and, and what are the potential risks? Anybody wants to jump into that? Well, it is uh, certainly a question uh, with, uh, with a lot of uh, layers of uncertainty. And uh, 
we also need to uh, recognize that uh, it is uh, not the situation where you have uh, a few rich uh, petro states and the rest is poor, particularly in the wider Middle East. Uh, Egypt is becoming self-sufficient uh, in energy, and it's a major change. Uh, and um, the opportunities for, uh, for the uh, poor states to attract attention uh, by uh, presenting themselves as promoters of uh, green agenda, of going for renewables, I think basically um, are improving because the uh, on the higher level of energy prices, if we have that, because it's one uh, potential impact of the crisis if we have greater volatility. It's a different impact if we have a higher level of uh, oil prices, more, more or less stable, as we had after the revolution in Iran, for that matter. They jumped and they stayed. So if we have the, uh, uh, on average, higher level of uh, prices on oil and gas, uh, is becoming more feasible, so to say, to go for uh, alternative sources, for renewables. Uh, it generally plays well, in not only for those who are producing coal in the wider Middle East. Coal is not really such an available fuel as in China or in India. Uh, we might see that uh, for in the wider Middle East, the green agenda might benefit if the, kind of, if the level of prices um, uh, go a little bit up, though it generally in my reading uh, it will be a different situation in oil market and in the gas market, and uh, it's greater opportunities for the oil market to stabilize and even to decline a little bit. It's probably going to be far more tension uh, as far as gas market are concerned, where the uh, uh, contraction of Russia's role has greater uh, greater impact. Um, and uh, where uh, there is no possibility to, uh, to open tap a little and compensate for that as on the, on the oil market. Um, if I may, two things. One is that, that really we need to understand the, the climate change we've been talking about as, as, as a threat multiplier for the whole region. The, the unprecedented droughts, for instance, we had between 1998 and 2012 has dramatically changed things. And I think now we're looking at, at, at a terrain where um, this is going to be the norm rather than the exception. Um, droughts, uh, flood, uh, flooding, uh, um, uh, agricultural product problems. Um, in, the, the region is importing uh, most of it uh, because, uh, because it has suffered otherwise. Uh, tourism problems that will follow and so on and so forth. I don't think that we're cognizant of where the, uh, the real problems are. But if Europe wants to see that beyond the region, then it's really a very simple thing to put the thread I was talking about earlier in place. Climate change means drought and floods. These mean migration. Migration, surprise, surprise, where to, means uh, socioeconomic problems, societal problems, um, security issues, uh, and so on and so forth. So, so obviously, we absolutely need to tackle this for everybody's sake, for the local population's sake, for the European sake and all that. And, and Europe can start by doing, I think, a very simple thing. Stop giving mixed messages. You cannot have at the same time the EBRD and the EIB having stopped funding absolutely anything fossil fuel-wise, and the very same EU funding with 120 million seed funding the East Med gas pipeline. 
This is a mixed message that is not good for anyone, including the EU, the, the companies, and so on and forth. We can think about electricity, electrification, and, and, and interconnectedness of the region along these terms, something that the EU can, uh, can I underline again, um, institute, fund, um, um, uh, provide vision for, and so on and so forth. You need to have an understanding of the region as a whole and not have fragmented policies vis-a-vis -vis some, um, some of the member states for, for political reasons and others. And, uh, and again, we need to be cognizant of who else is interested in the region before it's too late. Thank you. We'll uh, open up for uh, questions from the audience. And I have a very short list of none, so I hope there is more interest than that indicates. Uh, please also give, your, um, give a little brief introduction with your name and your, your affiliation. Please. Yes, and you'll, okay. you'll get a mic. And let me paraphrase the preface this with saying that we are actually recording the event. Um, so um, the intention is to post it in the aftermath. So um, if you have uh, sensitive issues you want to discuss with the panel, that may be best reserved for um, the mingling afterwards. Um, I'm a journalist in um, VG. My name is Astrid Miland. I have so many questions, but not all of them are about the Middle East. So I guess I'll start with the, with the Middle East, uh, maybe Matilde. Uh, I don't know, some of you. Because uh, one of the things that we learned, uh, I guess the EU and Germany learned after the war, was that they won't longer be dependent on a ruthless dictator to turn up the heating at home and keep the industry going. So they want to shift to something else, and they are going to Qatar and everywhere to Norway as well. But many of the new countries that are to supply gas and fossils, they are also dictatorships. How do, uh, do you have any comments on that? Or what's the EU's uh, comments on that? Hmm. <laughs> do you have any comments? <laughs> Feel free to comment. I think it is uh, part of the uh, uh, general mess created by this war, uh, that particular issue. Uh, because when, for instance, President Biden tries to uh, advance a discourse related to that war, and it's a part of the confrontation between democracy and dictatorship, it sounds very good. But, uh, but at the same time, in this confrontation, he needs more support from other strong men, from Modi in India to even Venezuela as we have seen recently, so it doesn't really quite fit into that, uh, into that situation. And I think um, um, part of the general approach may be playing on the situation that democracies can come together. And we've seen incredible amount of solidarity and unity uh, uh, in the West, not only in the EU or between the EU and the United States, but also including you know, Japan, South Korea, Australia, the, the, the very big collective West. But democracies can come together, dictatorships generally don't. It's each dictator for himself. Uh, I don't remember a single, single lady among them, so we can say <laughs> that way. Uh, and it is obviously in this particular very acute crisis created by the war to exploit that kind of divisions between uh, dictators and kind of to try to uh, uh, engage with them uh, knowing pretty well that yes 
uh, we need to deal with the war. Uh, it creates uh, its own tensions, but nevertheless, um, the kind of larger picture remains the same, um, because the democratic course needs to be advised as much as the green agenda. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's real politic, I guess. Um, I think Eisenhower has given the answer without having anyone in mind now myself saying, they're bastards, but they're our bastards. So that, uh, that, that might have been uh, the case before. The, the, there is one thing that, that I'm concerned about. Obviously, unfortunately, oil and gas, at least, are not really found in Switzerland. They're found in, in states that, that tend to have political issues themselves. Uh, but, but bear in mind that beyond the quote-unquote uh, or without quotes dictators, there are also nations behind them and people with needs. Um, and obviously, we, we, it's also important to engage with, uh, with countries through the, um, through the, um, the, 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 um, uh, the welfare of, of, of their people, um, especially when dictators have the last thing they want is, or have in mind is the welfare of, of, of their own people. Uh, so I'm sorry, that, that realpolitik to my mind, it's, we, we have to take a grave decision. We do without energy or uh, political relations with leaders. Yeah. yeah, I can add that there is not necessarily a lack of realpolitik in democracies either. Uh, there are uh, oil and gas countries that are uh, not dictatorships, but th that does not mean they don't have the same pretty uh, ruthless uh, realpolitik when it comes to oil and gas. Uh, once I won't mention any names. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, Norway is not uh, really planning to, to scale down its, oil, uh, its own oil production anytime soon. Uh, although there is a difference in how these things are being discussed in a dictatorship, or not discussed, or uh, in a democracy, liberal democracies, that doesn't necessarily, or it often doesn't translate into action um, on the ground or results in parliamentary elections. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, we are all pretty cynical when it comes to energy supply, and it's very politically sensitive topic. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, I think that if we had the same uh, gas reserves as Qatar in Norway, or if we had the, the same oil reserves as Kuwait, we would also be planning for many, many decades of uh, continued expansion of the oil sector, to be honest. Thanks. Pinar? Pinar Tank from Prio. Um, just a question to Matilda. Uh, you mentioned this desire to move away. Well, with, with the disenga disengagement of the U.S. from the Middle East, you mentioned that there was a, a desire to have a more uh, independent foreign policy on, uh, on, from the Saudi Arabia and UAE. But my question is that in, in so doing, and uh, in, in forming closer relations to Russia, uh, how does this affect the position of Iran? Because surely their major n uh, national interest is keeping Iran down. Sorry, I didn't hear the first part. Uh, I'm just asking how this will affect uh, Iran's position if it is the case that uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE get closer to Russia, uh, and surely one of their primary national interests is to keep Iran down in the region. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that it's like... I, I don't really have a good answer, to be honest. <laughs> Does anyone want to... 
have an opinion on that? Well, I, I can offer a point that I don't think anybody in the region is going to get closer to Russia. Uh, you know, Yet. Russia is really, uh, um, well, not entirely isolated, but is shaping up as a loser. And uh, dictators are fairly, fairly attentive to this, uh, um, uh, to, um, uh, this uh, possibility. But I think for the Saudi Arabia and others, in their behavior, particularly after President Trump, uh, whom they probably hope to, uh, to see back, uh, there is an understanding that, yes, it is interesting to diversify, to kind of play political games with different ways, but there is only one country which can be a security provider, and it is the United States. That nobody else would kind of really interfere in their wars and conflicts. China will generally, dependent as it is, from the oil and gas supplies from the Middle East still cannot really play this role. And if the United States uh, in, uh, wants to disengage from these wars and conflicts, that generally means that they need much more restraint in uh, playing dangerous games. Because if the conflict with Iran comes, they have no security guarantee. And so escalating tensions in, in that direction doesn't really play well uh, for the uh, Arab uh, Gulf states, rich as they are. Yes, we have a question here at the front. <laughs> Just a minute, you'll uh, get a microphone. Or even a second. <laughs> Hi, thanks. Very interesting. My, my name is Edward O'Donnell. I'm uh, from the United States. I'm a professor at Arizona State University, and I'm teaching a course for, on U.S. diplomacy in Russia right now, so my students are getting the full dose of U.S. policy in Russia. Quite but the course. I, <laughs> I, I have two, two questions. One, following up on, on the comment, uh, uh, the Secretary Blinken just rolled out the, the Human Rights Report, and I don't think that pulled any punches on Saudi Arabia, different countries. In other words, talking about uh, energy markets with Saudi and other countries that are not democracies, there's still plenty of uh, meat to the human rights reports if you look country by country and international. There's a number of series of reports to Congress on trafficking in persons and international religious freedom and preventing genocide and so on. So I think that can be done, both can be done in terms of U.S. interests, whether it's human rights or preventing genocide or oil and energy and so on, but that's just me. So the question I had is nuclear energy. Do you see, how does that play in this mix? Is there, does it open up more possibilities or interest in investments in nuclear energy in Europe, especially? I, I know I think of where France is going, but what about Germany and other countries for Use, uh, use of n nuclear energy to fill part of that gap, at least. So, thank you. Yes? Anybody wants to try to tackle, tackle that? <laughs> um, uh, is there a new debate on nuclear energy? I can tell you a very small factual thing coming from uh, discussions I had with uh, the, the German leadership last week. Um, there is absolutely no future for nuclear in Germany. Uh, that's, that's an end discussion. They've closed the chapter. 
Uh, they said that they, for a number of reasons, partly because these things don't just switch off and on. It would take, it would take a few years. Um, but, uh, but the discussion is there. What worries me a little bit more, if I can take the clue out of this discussion, the very same discussion we had with, um, with um, the German leadership, is that uh, it has only been kept at the federal level for the time being, more, more generally speaking. The federal government throughout whatever has been discussed has not consulted with the German Industry Federation yet. It has not consulted with the lender, with the constituent states, and you know what they can do. I remind you that in the case of, of, the, of the state of uh, Mecklenburg, I think the prime minister said that you know, we're going ahead with the Nord Stream pipeline with, because our state has invested 20% of it, and that's that. And they have not had this discussion. They have not had um, a public consultation, and this is Germany we're talking about, where a public consultation is very important. So I would be very, uh, um, uh, very skeptical as to where things will necessarily go. I don't think the federal government knows yet were. But, but nuclear is for sure out in Germany. In France, I don't know, you might have more insight. I think France is trying to uh, push forward the nuclear agenda very much. Uh, and I think they might find, uh, Germany is indeed a special case, mm. but I think they might find uh, interest in the Middle East, which is our, our main topic for discussion where Russia was also exploring all sorts of opportunities after uh, reasonably successful completion of the Boucher in Iran and more or less uh, on track, being on track in Turkey with a nuclear, nuclear power station. What undercuts Russian uh, position now is that uh, uh, Russia now cannot rely on the same uh, kind of tactics, so to say, of giving generous loans of uh, taking on a lot of uh, financial uh, risks, uh, providing a lot of uh, technology. Russia is now not in the, in the position to do that. So I think France might take an, uh, an opportunity here uh, with its uh, experience in running nuclear, uh, nuclear stations. And I generally foresee that in the, in the wider Middle East, nuclear might become a popular issue. Mm. If I may only, there's a two to three year delay on the Russian part of Rosneft regarding the Akuyu plants in Turkey. It's not Rosneft. Is it not? No, no, no. Rosneft is, is, okay. is pure. But, but there, is, there is going to be a delay, yes, that, uh, uh, yeah. I think, on the. Yeah. There were some interruptions, yes. but at least uh, yeah. they, both sides mm. trying, to, make, oh, yes. trying to show that the project is on track. Of course. Good, good, and thanks for taking that question also back to the Middle East and the implications for the debate on nuclear energy there. I have one more person on my list, which is Jürgen here. Uh, and if anybody wants to uh, use the last opportunity, to, then that is now. <laughs> yes, uh, Jürgen Janssagen, senior researcher here at uh, PRIO. I have a question specifically to you, Pavel, which, which brings us to Syria. Because I know in, in previous times before the war, <laughs> um, you talked quite a bit about Russia and Syria and, and sort of the balance between the Syrian interest and the European interest for Russia, um, saying that if, if Russia has a sense of overstretch, uh, they will uh, prefer the European theater to the Syrian theater, and that might induce them to, to leave Syria. Mm. Do you see that differently now with the war, or is Syria sort of uh, the last ally they have so they will entrench even more in Syria? Well, generally there is less impact 
from the war in Ukraine on the Syrian conflict than I expected. Uh, you know, there was always a connection between the two, uh, far away as they are. Uh, Syria, Russian-Syrian intervention started just as the Minsk agreement was signed for, for Ukraine. So in many ways it was from one, play, uh, one place to another. But we generally uh, can expect that the uh, Russian scale of Russian military involvement in Syria uh, would, uh, would go down. Uh, now that Russia is trying to recruit mercenaries in Syria, including from Hezbollah, uh, to go to Ukraine, which might be not very um, uh, significant militarily, but it generally tells you that uh, Russia cannot uh, perform uh, the uh, major role in supporting of al-Assad regime uh, in Syria, and that probably uh, might take a few more months to mature as such, uh, but with the closure of the uh, Turkish strikes for the Russian military ship, even the uh, normal uh, supply of the intervention with the Russian, uh, with the Russian Navy is, uh, is, is a very problematic proposition. It's only that much Russia can deliver by air. So I think uh, that um, the Ukrainian war might reverberate. Uh, might reverberate in, in Syria even if it's not kind of energy related and we see sometimes uh, small triggers suddenly uh, bring back so much old tensions. We saw that in Jerusalem, we saw that in North Shopping around, around the corner from here. I'm, I am worried about a possibility of a new uh, eruption of uh, hostilities in Syria where so much conflict potential is there uh, really un, uh, untreated, so to say, unmanaged. Uh, and um, and you tired as the country certainly is from its, from its uh, civil war. Uh, but um, uh, but the, uh, uh, so to say, even partial withdrawal of Russian support can crucially weaken uh, the Al-Assad regime uh, because the economic situation in Syria is such that um, the country is, cannot be internally stable. Okay, last question to Astrid here. Thank you. So this is not about the Middle East. <laughs> Maybe it's for Pavel. I'm not sure. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we remember that Putin uh, wanted the, the payment for gas in rubles. And uh, mm -hmm. it might be done via Gazprom Bank, and, but uh, Germany said no. I think only Hungary said yes. And we haven't heard so much about this uh, the couple of, last couple of weeks. So what, what can happen? I think the payment is due soon. Can the, can the flow stop? And are we potentially seeing a new, uh, even worse, energy crisis in, uh, in Europe? I think that specific issue of kind of paying in rubles uh, was technically resolved with the Gazprom Bank, which is not sanctioned. And so the kind of, uh, Europeans continue to pay in euro, and the conversion into rubles is done uh, by the bank. Hungary is a, is a country which is a little bit outside this uh, scheme, but I think technicalities of that particular issue were sorted out. But we have now a greater problem uh, coming up with various defaults uh, on uh, Russian payments uh, where 
uh, which are technically problematic because all sort of uh, normal channels of making payments from Russia are sanctioned. And Russia insists on doing these payments in rubles, which essentially means uh, technical default. It might resonate further in the, uh, in the energy market uh, as well. But uh, I think essentially it, um, it, it means that in this situation where the military war is very much localized and in the economic sphere um, the escalation between Russia and the West keeps going up, we cannot expect any ceasefire, so to say, in, in, this, um, uh, in this total economic war. Uh, we, will, we are certain to have more spasms and uh, we are certain to have more difficulties and troubles. Um, and the fact that gas continues to flow uninterrupted uh, is an interesting phenomenon, but I'm not sure it's going to last. Yes. With euros or yes. whatever. Yes. And they are converted to rubles. The rubles then. So, but so I, I thought that I heard that also that solution was some kind of breach of the sanctions or not looked good upon by the EU. Well, the, there are issues there, but since Gazprom Bank is not sanctioned, unlike Sberbank and, and some others, uh, it was uh, deemed as an uh, acceptable solution. Uh, and Hungary can do its own payments uh, uh, the way it, uh, it wants. But I don't think that particular trick which solved that particular issue will last. Uh, we, we are certain to have more uh, problems, and each uh, technical default Russia is going to experience in uh, probably already this week, and certainly in the next one, will somehow resonate on that particular... No, no, that not so, that's kind of there are different payments on different parts of Russian uh, debts that needs to be made, and um, uh, one default leads to another to a third. So uh, I think this uh, scheme is going to be interrupted as well. Thanks. We have a couple more minutes if you want to use them for any final reflections, perhaps taking us back to the Middle East, if there is anything, any pressing need you have to, uh, to uh, address unaddressed issues or simply synthesize some of what's been uh, said. No obligation whatsoever. Hmm. I was going to compliment what, what, what Pavel was saying last because I think, look, it's also indicative to my mind that on both sides there is a need or a wish to have some channels open. And I think this is pragmatic. Uh, if you really wanted to push things, you wouldn't only ban from, from ports, Russian flagships, you would also ban Russian interest ships. And, of course, this has not been done. So on and on and on. So obviously I think it's important to have a channel because we know that, that the situation, if you don't have a channel, will be even worse. Uh, the worst thing you can do in, in conflicts is not to have a diplomatic channel open of some definition. So, yes, I agree with you. There are going to be spasms and ups and downs. But I think eventually there will be a thread, somehow a, a channel open because that, that works for everyone. Well, uh, it certainly makes sense what you are mm. saying. But what I also see that Russia is seeing sanctions being tightened every week, mm. twice a week, mm. nearly every day. Mm. So they are feeling it's a total economic war waged against them. Mm -hmm. And whatever channels you might keep uh, w w willing to keep open this week are in inevitably closed next week. Could be. So we have this escalation trend in economic mm. uh, relations uh, going strong. Matilda, any final? Uh, no. 
<laughs> that is allowed. <laughs> you certainly offered your share of insight. By the way, I can mention one thing. When, when you asked about the nuclear, and you mentioned the Middle East, it has a role there. I think it definitely will have a role in the energy mix because uh, in the UAE, they are now really going for um, nuclear power to cover a huge part of their electricity like lo um, domestically to free up uh, other sources of energy for export. And uh, that is very, very important for them to be able to to be independent of uh, independent from um, uh, importing gas from other countries because they have such a big consumption domestically that they really need that. And they are not the only countries in the Gulf uh, looking at that as, a, as an important option for the future. So that's worth mentioning yeah. too. And as we learned from this seminar, not only do we need to take a 30,000 feet perspective, we also need to look for the devil in the details. And I think that little counterintuitive uh, observation from Matilde does conclude the seminar quite uh, nicely. Thank you to all three panelists, Pavel, Harry, and uh, Matilda. This has been uh, very enlightening to, uh, to me. There is so much more ground to cover, of course, but I, uh, I feel that we, uh, we learned a lot, uh, and I hope that the audience feels the same. Thank you also to the, uh, to the audience for prioritizing the seminar on the first day after uh, the Easter break. We are uh, very happy to have you here. Thanks to everybody who asked uh, questions and uh, do follow the PRIA web pages for new events. We have a number of interesting events on the Middle East coming up in the next uh, couple of months. Uh, they're not all there on the web page yet, but they are in the pipeline on their way to the web page. So follow that, uh, follow that space. Thanks again to everybody, to the panelists, to the audience for being here. Um, we look forward to having you back. Thank you. 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 Thank you.